Welcome back to Women's Bible Study. And I'm just so delighted to see all of your faces and especially some new faces to Bible study. So uh, we're just uh, excited to get started again. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Pam Larson, and I serve as the Minister for Women here at the North Campus. And I wrote the study by God's grace. Some of you know that last fall when I had COVID, that was one of the periods of time that the Lord gave me extended time at home to be able to write a lot of these lessons. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a silver lining even in COVID. So, all right. So let me pray and then we're going to get started. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you, Lord, that this is a day that you have made and we can rejoice in it because you are our sovereign God and we can put our trust in you, you sustain us by your grace, and you satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, which never fails. So thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for women's Bible study mercy this morning. Thank you for the privilege that it is to gather with sisters in Christ to dig into your word. And we just thank you for this opportunity, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to get right in. Why should we study Exodus? Well, the number one reason is that we want to know the Lord, our Redeemer. His name was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am, Yahweh. All right, so I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably. In uh, Psalm 66, 5 through 7, we read, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There we did rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. So God wants to be known. He wants to be lifted up, magnified, glorified, and worshiped. And number two, we want to understand his redeeming work and how Exodus actually is used throughout the Old Testament like I just read in Psalm 66, and in the New Testament as a type of the saving work that Jesus has done on our behalf on the cross. So the Exodus is really foundational to understanding all that Jesus has done for us. And in fact, do you remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the disciples? They didn't know who he was. And he was talking with them, and starting with Moses, he unpacked all the scriptures. And do you remember what he said about the scriptures? Anybody? I hope this, is, this will be interactive. What did he say about the scriptures? Yes, that all the scriptures were about him. And so we need to put on those glasses as we, as we study Exodus and realize that everything in Exodus is about Jesus, okay? And how do we make those connections? Sometimes it's harder than others but you need to look with those kind of glasses. All right, how does Exodus fit into God's story? Well, Jared Compton, who is a professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and incidentally, he has a wife named Sharice, and a lot of you have met Sharice, and Sharice is on our teaching team for this semester. Praise God, okay? Along with Amy Catterson, Jared came to speak with some of the leaders in the fall, and Jared said this, he said, Exodus is at the center of God's story. Exodus is to the Old Testament what the gospel is to the new. And then he also said, God's story is more than just redemption. 
And initially I went, what? No. That, that's what God's story is all about, right? It's all about redemption. But what he meant is we too are saved from something. When God redeems us, that's not the end of the story, right? We are put on mission like the people of Israel. We are saved for his glory. We are saved in order to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That's why we're saved. That's why we are redeemed. Now, some of the stories that we read in Exodus are very familiar, right? Perhaps some of you learned them in Sunday school with the flannel board like I did. Exodus is not just a series of stories about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. It, it is that. The human side of the story is really important and we can learn a lot. But the Apostle Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, now these things took place as examples for us. They were written down for our instruction. Okay, so not only do they point to Jesus, but they're examples for us. We can learn from Moses. We can learn from the people of Israel. All of those things are there for us. And the best way to understand them is to look at them in context. That is, we want to see the big picture of where Exodus fits into God's story. And so you remember from the fall that Exodus is a part of a series of five books, and five is Penta, remember? So it's Pentateuch, all right? Do you remember what those five books are? There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Good job. And who wrote all those books? Moses, that's right. And we're gonna to get to that in a little minute. Now in this lesson, Today, my aim is to have this historical review of Genesis to better understand the context. And by the way, I think this is on page nine of your workbook. So in case you were wondering, page nine of your work, workbook is kind of the start of the handout for this morning, okay? So then I debated whether I should make it fill in the blank so you would really pay attention, but I decided it would be much easier if you just had everything there. So don't fall asleep on me this morning, okay? Even though it's all there. Then we're gonna do a little bit of an overview of Exodus, of the whole book, and then we're gonna have a summary of the big themes that we can look for in the book of Exodus. And then we're gonna have a little break. And we're gonna do a flyover of Exodus 1 through 15 from the fall. So you'll be all ready to jump into the next lesson, lesson 10, all right? So here we go, hang on. Genesis is gonna go very quickly here. All right, it's 50 chapters, but we're gonna do it in 10 minutes or less, okay? So, because the big question is, how in the world did the people of Israel end up in Egypt? And we were almost to the end of our fall study when one of the, one of the women who was taking the, the, the class said to me, she said, I, I don't understand. Um, I, I thought we were talking about the people of Israel, but they're, they're in Egypt? And, uh, you know, she didn't put it together, and I said, okay, we should really go back to the beginning and emphasize, okay, these are people who were in Canaan, right? That's where they were from, but there was a famine, so they end up in, in Egypt. Okay, so we're gonna go back to the very beginning. So if you wanna open your Bible to Genesis 1, that's where we're gonna start, Genesis 1. Chapter 1 and 2, we have the biggest event, right, is creation. God creates everything, including man. Right? Adam and Eve are his wonderful creation. And everything was 
Good, it was very good. But then we get to chapter three and what happens? Bad. All right? What, what, what happens? The fall. What does the fall mean? Sin. Sin enters the world and, and by sin, death, right? So this was really bad news. But, and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, correct? But also we have the first good news. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, why is this good news? It's redemption. Who is her offspring? Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is the first announcement of the gospel is here in Genesis where this is uh, foretold, all right? And this is gonna be fulfilled in Jesus who ultimately at the cross crushes a serpent. Now for a few verses later, we see a little bit more of good news, okay? We see the first sacrifice. And the reason I bring this up is because this points to the sacrifice that we see at Passover in Exodus 12 and 13, right? The Lord God made for Adam and Eve and his wife, or for Adam and for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. How would he get garments of skin? From an animal that had to sacrifice his life. Okay, so God covers Adam and Eve just like the people of Israel had their sins covered by the blood of the lamb over the door, just like we have the blood of Christ. Okay, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture, and this is the first place where we see this. Uh, let's go to chapter four. We're gonna go a little bit faster. In chapter four, we see the first murder. In chapters five through 11, we see the story of Noah, the ark, the flood, and then we see the spread of people everywhere. And then in chapters 12 through 25, we see the story of Abram, who was later called Abraham, same person. And we see that God made some very big promises to him. In Genesis 12, God called Abram, and he said, I will make, see, I will, you see that? I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's an incredible promise. And don't we see this unfolding in Exodus as the people of God multiply greatly? They are blessed indeed. And then they end up in bondage, right? But God saved them. Now we see, we're gonna see in Exodus 19, uh, verses five and six, the Lord said to Moses, he said this, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is fulfilling that promise here in Exodus. I will make of you a great nation. And now if we jump ahead to the very end of the Bible, in Revelation, Revelation 5, we read where this promise is ultimately fulfilled. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders 
fell down before the Lamb, and each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from what? From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So that is us. We get to be a part of this promise because not only was God making the people of Israel into a great nation, but because he redeemed them and sent them out, we're a part of that promise. We get to be part of that every tribe and people and nation that are worshiping the Lamb. So that's a beautiful, beautiful picture of how this is ultimately plays out in the story of Scripture. Okay, back to Abraham. This is Yahweh's covenant with Abraham that he makes in chapter 15. This is a key chapter, all right? He says to Abram, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be, your reward shall be very great. He said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And what does it say? It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's incredible. Now, God made this covenant with Abraham in a ceremony. And you remember, the sun went down. I won't read all of it, but he promises again here. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And what land is that that do we know now? Egypt. And they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, which is Egypt, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Did we see that when they came out of Egypt? And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So here's Abraham in this land, the promised land, and God's saying, your people are going to end up in Egypt for 400 years, but don't worry, I'm going to bring you back here. This is the land that I promised to you. This is my covenant with you. And do you remember the covenant ceremony? I probably talk about this too many times, right? But it's so... It's so important, and to me, it's so beautiful, and that is the fact that in this covenant ceremony, it's a one-sided agreement that God makes with Abraham, and in the ceremony, what they do is they sacrifice an animal. They put one half of the animal here and one half of the animal here, and then the people that are making the agreement walk between the pieces, and what they're saying is, so help me God if that should happen to me if I don't uphold my end of this promise, this covenant. But Abraham is asleep, so he doesn't make that promise. Who makes the promise? God does. God says, let that happen to me if I don't hold to my promise. I'm faithful. I will do what I say I will do. So this is really beautiful. And one of the other connections that we had to Exodus here was the fact that how God walks this kind of gauntlet between the sacrifices of animals. What is it? We saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that passed between the pieces. Did we see something like that in Exodus? Smoke and fire, it's the same thing. Yeah. The, the day, um, the, in the day they had the cloud. And at night the fire. The night the, so this is what 
scholars call a theophany. Okay, this is, this is God revealing himself in a visible way that people can see. So this is what happened here with, with uh, Abraham. Now we know that Abraham waited a long time for this promise, right? He says, to your offspring. Abraham didn't have any offspring, right? Abraham tried to do it himself, right? He wanted to find another way to do it. But we know that his wife had a miraculous geriatric pregnancy that I'm not hoping to have at all, all right? But, you know, this, this was a miracle. And actually, we know that Abraham had lots of descendants, and God caused them to be very fruitful and to be, mul and to be multiplied. Well, Abraham's son that he had, the son of promise, do you remember what his name was? Isaac, okay, so let's talk about Isaac a little bit. Isaac, we read about in chapters 21 through 35 of the book of Genesis. This is what Paul writes about this story in the book of Romans. And I wanted to read this to you so you get Paul's perspective on it. I have made you the father of many nations, is what God says to Abraham, in the presence of God in whom Abraham believed. This is what Paul is saying. This is what Abraham believed who, about God. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So in this next story, what we have here is that when Isaac grew up into a boy, God told him to do what? Sacrifice him. His offspring, how could that be? This is Abraham's offspring. How could God ask him to do this? But Abraham believed. And what did he believe about God? God gives life to the dead. He brings into existence things that are not in it, you know. That's what he believed. If God wants me to sacrifice Isaac, I believe God could raise him from the dead. I'm going to trust in God no matter what. And I can't imagine that. But Abraham, what a man of faith. That's, that's incredible. But as they, as they approached the altar, what did Isaac say? Where is the lamb? Behold, the fire and the wood is here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abram says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's exactly what happened. At the last minute, there was that ram stuck in the thicket. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Do you know where that mount is? It was called Mount Moriah in the Old Testament. Do you know what we call it in the New Testament? Say it louder. No, not Sinai. Zion. Yeah, where is Zion? Calvary in Jerusalem. This, this is where God ultimately provided his lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus this also points to chapter 12 and 13 of Exodus where we see the blood that's applied to the doorposts 
the redeeming blood of Jesus. After Isaac, we come to Esau and Jacob in chapters 25 through 36. These were the twin sons of Isaac, and we know that Jacob gets the blessing by a little bit of trickery, and uh, Jacob had 12 sons, thus the 12 tribes of Israel. And we read those about the 12 sons of Israel that came to Egypt in chapter 1 of Exodus. Now, one of the sons, the 11th son, was Joseph. So in spite of all kinds of sin, all kinds of failure to trust in God, God did keep his promises. Even though they didn't trust him all the time, he continued to bless this family. What happens next is a really familiar Bible story to some of you, but if not, you can read more about it in Genesis 37 through 50. Joseph was... Uh, I mean, he was the object of jealousy by his brothers. He ended up being sold uh, by his brothers to a traveling caravan that was on their way to Egypt and ultimately sold into slavery in the land of Egypt. But when he got there, he, was, he had the favor of the Lord, and he was promoted. He was promoted to help out. He had a lot of success, but then he was wrongfully accused, went to prison for some more years, and after then interpreting Pharaoh's dreams he was put in charge of everything because do you remember what Pharaoh's dreams were all about? That there would be seven years of plenty, first, first seven years of plenty, so get prepared, and then seven years of famine, right? So Joseph had, he knew this was coming, so he, he prepared. And he had so much favor of the Lord, he even became second in command over over everything in Egypt. And so after these seven years of famine, or of plenty, then the famine hits. And what's happening then in Egypt, they're prepared, they've stored up lots of food. What happens back in Canaan? The famine is over this whole area. So that is the circumstance which brings the people of Israel to Egypt. Because Jacob, meanwhile, is still grieving the loss of his son Joseph. He's back there, he sends his other sons to get food. Well, Joseph, you know the story, right? He recognizes his brothers, right? So he says to his brothers, God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh says, I'm going to give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you're going to eat the fat of the land. So initially then, do you think Jacob wants to come to Egypt? He'd rather just get the food and stay in his land, right? God has to make a promise here to Jacob. He says, in a dream, he says, I am God. I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. We see that promise once again, that you would be a great nation. God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. Beautiful. We see now a little bit about this land that the people of Israel come to, because Pharaoh says to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And what was Goshen-like? Super fertile. Because what do we know about the geography of Egypt? Do you remember anything from our 
Yeah, it's the Nile Delta that would flood seasonally, and so this was some of the best land around. So that is where Pharaoh is going to let them settle. What's the other reason that they let them settle in this area? Do you remember what their occupation? And what did Egypt think of the shepherds? They didn't like them. They, they despised the dirty shepherds. But this was a blessing because they, they got to live out in this area, and that is part of what God used to grow this mighty nation, right? They were, they were out here on their own, growing and multiplying. Okay, but what happens now? After the death of Jacob, Joseph said to them, don't fear. He says, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. God's intentions were for their good. And so we come now to the final verses of Genesis. We learn that Joseph lived 110 years, and he says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham. So here we see that promise again, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, repeats that again, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Did we see in part one that the people did that? They got his bones and they actually obeyed this. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now some of you that saw the patterns in Exodus movies know that they're doing some archaeological digs in that area and they have since found some of these tombs and they found one in particular that doesn't have any bones. And you're wondering, why would that be? Okay, well, the people probably took his bones with him, just like the Bible says. I'm just, just a small recap, and then we're going to take a break here. So it was God who promised to multiply Abraham's descendants and to make a great nation of them. It was God who told Abraham ahead of time that his offspring would be strangers in a foreign land, that they would be afflicted, that they would serve. God told them that ahead of time. But he also told them that he would rescue them. And he also promised Jacob that he would go with him to Egypt and bring him back out again. And God fulfilled all of his promises. And so then there's a few hundred years that go by after the book of Genesis ends, and then we get to Exodus. Okay, let's do the Exodus overview. Um, Exodus continues a story, and you know this from the very first verse of Exodus chapter 1, which says, these are the names, okay? So this is the names of, of all the, the sons of Jacob that eventually came uh, to Egypt. And then we read that Joseph died, all of his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong. Four different ways of saying the same thing. We're getting the idea, aren't we? God had really came through on his promise. He really blessed this people. So the land was filled with them. Now there was a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And what was his attitude about this land being filled with all these people? They're afraid. Yeah, he was really afraid. You know, what, what if they, they re, you know, have open mutiny and, and uh, you know, 
come against him. The author of the book of Exodus is Moses, as the other five books of the Pentateuch. And this is a traditional view, but it's also the view of Jesus. So we know we can count on the fact that Moses was the author. Okay, the audience is the people of Israel. Okay, they have, they've come out of Egypt already. They're on their way into the promised land. But do you remember Moses doesn't get to go with them into the promised land? Do you remember that? And we're going to learn in part two why. But he doesn't get to go in, and so he writes the history of the, the people of Israel so that they know their story. They know their roots. They know what happened. Because the generation that's about to go into the promised land they didn't know what was hap they didn't know what was happening back in Egypt and they were going to forget it unless he wrote it down so the people of Israel is his audience the style or the genre is mainly historical narrative it's a story it's a story of tr of of a true uh, historical happening uh, except for uh, Exodus 15 which is a different genre can anybody remember what Exodus 15 is Poetry, yeah, it's a song. Remember the people of uh, Moses and Miriam, they, they celebrate by singing to the Lord after they cross the Red Sea. All right, now the date, uh, this is debated by scholars. Some think it's 1446 BC, others think a later date, like 1260 BC. And this was the topic of the Patterns in Evidence movie number one, which is called The Exodus. So if you did not have a chance to view that and you would like to, we have extra copies of that that you can check out you can bring home you can watch it at home and you can learn a lot I think from that you'll be I think bolstered in your faith by uh, by learning from that I wanted to make sure that you also know that there's internal evidence within the Bible for this particular date of 1446 BC the earlier date and that is that according to first Kings 6 1 the exodus it says took place 480 years before the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. And we know that Solomon began his reign in 970 BC, and so this would give a date of 450 BC for the Exodus, okay? So that's some internal evidence. All right, a super basic outline of the book is we could divide it into two, like the way we did this study, okay? Part one would be before the Exodus, and part two would be after the Exodus, after they've left Egypt. Um, other outline options are, one way is by how God reveals himself in the book. And I wanted to read for you Exodus 6, 6 through 8 as a review because this, is, this gives you a little bit of how God reveals himself in the book. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He reveals himself in these ways, and so we could divide the book of Exodus that way. Number one would be he reveals himself as Savior, Deliverer, Redeemer. That's why we titled part one of our study, Our Redeemer, Mighty to Save. Because we saw how God was revealing himself as the one who delivered his people, who saved them, who brought them out of Egypt. 
And then in the second half of Exodus, we're going to see that God says, you're my people. He's our covenant God. He renews that covenant with the people. And he says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And then we also see that he says, I want you to build me a tent, a tabernacle. And I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in you. And a bookend for Exodus is just like we just read in Exodus 1, how the, how the land was filled with the people of Israel. We're going to see a, a bookend in Exodus 40. And what we see in Exodus 40 is that God comes and he fills the tabernacle with his glory. Okay, so it's a beautiful bookend in Exodus. All right. Or we can also look at geography. I think you have this in your, your uh, handout as well. We begin in Egypt in chapters 1 through 12. Then we have the Exodus where they're on their way out of Egypt. Then they hit an obstacle. What obstacle do they hit when God tells them to turn back? They're trapped at that Red Sea, aren't they? So then they cross the Red Sea in chapter 14, and then they end up in the wilderness. And that's where you're going to start now this week. In Lesson 10, they are going to be, they're just leaving the Red Sea. They're arriving at a place in the wilderness. Finally, when they travel through the wilderness, they arrive at their, their destination. Do you remember? Their destination is Mount Sinai. Okay, Remember God promised to Moses back in, I think it was Exodus 3 or 4, he said, you're going to bring the people back here. Then you'll know that I'm God because you will bring them back here. Let's look at a couple of themes for Exodus. The key question in the whole book is, who is the Lord? How does he reveal himself to us? What is his name? Who is Yahweh? And even Pharaoh asks that question back in Exodus 5. He says, who is the Lord Yahweh? Who is that I should obey him, right? Yahweh, the Lord God, he reveals himself. He wants us to see him and to know him. That's, that's the purpose of all the Bible. He wants us to know him and to love him. So Yahweh delivers his people for his sake and for his glory. Or we could say it's, it's for him and it's to him. Okay, that's why they're delivered. The central theme of the book, according to Dr. Jason DeRoshi, is Yahweh's self-exalting, gracious redemption and relationship with his people. Redemption and relationship. And he said we can divide the book up. Chapters 1 through 18 is really all about God's redemption. He's our redeemer. But then he goes on to say, I want a relationship with my people. And so chapters 19 through 40 are all about God defining the relationship. And he does that through covenant instructions, his law, his commands. He tells them how he should be worshipped. Here's how you set up a tabernacle. This is where you're going to come and worship me. This is my dwelling place. And he says God delivers his people for and to himself and his glory. And he also delivers them that they might serve him. Do you remember that's something that even Moses said to Pharaoh repeatedly. Let my people go that they may serve me. So that's something we're going to see repeated in part two as well. All right, we have some other themes in Exodus, and I have those listed. We've seen that Yahweh, the Lord, saves. We saw this Moses in the basket. We saw the blood over the doorposts. We saw how God saved them through the Red Sea. So through blood and through water, he saves them. 
that there should be echoes there of something that you know in the New Testament of how God saves us. He saves us through the blood, doesn't he? Through new birth. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Yahweh is our holy God. Moses met him at the burning bush. And he also led them with that pillar of fire that we talked about. And we're going to see this coming up in chapter 32 of Exodus where we get to that little incident where they forget all about Moses and Yahweh and they decide that a golden calf is worthy of worship. Okay, we, We're going to learn in that chapter how God is holy. All right, Yahweh is our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. So we remember all the way back to Genesis 15, we talked about that covenant ceremony. We're going to see God make a covenant with his people again. We're going to see what that ceremony looks like as a corporate covenant ceremony where Moses, that's in chapter 24 of Exodus. And then we're going to see that, that Yahweh is ever-present. He meets and he speaks with Moses. He promises Moses he's going to be with him. Remember, even though he said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let the people go, but the bad news, Moses, he's not going to listen to you, but I'm going to be with you right? So God comes to meet Israel on the mountain. He, he leads them through the pillar of fire, and he also comes down in the tabernacle. We also, another theme is that Yahweh is the one true God. One of the things that you underlined throughout part one is, so that they will know that I am God. That's one of God's emphases in in the book of Exodus. He wants to be known. He wants us to know him. So look for that even through part two. Okay, he wants us to know him. I wanted to begin with just a quick word about maps. Uh, you have a map that's on page 140, I think, of your, of your workbook. And I wanted to just point out a couple of things for you on the map. Um, this is a map that I created because when I looked at study Bibles, commentaries, um, other sources, I could not find a map that would just leave off the things that they were not sure about. Instead, they would just put their guesses on there. You know, those of you that, that did the Patterns of Evidence movies with us, that there are a couple of different options for where the Red Sea crossing actually happened. Okay, it's a historical fact, but there's two main camps. One is called the Egyptian approach, which is that it took place closer to Egypt, and it was on a small scale, maybe even like a swampy place where the wind just blew and they walked through. The other approach is called the Hebrew approach, and that is that it happened further away from Egypt. It was a bigger body of water. It was just a just a, a, a miracle of just stupendous proportions, ginormous kind of miracle, okay? So those are the two different approaches, and I wanted to just point that out on the map this morning so that as we, as we talk through this, you have in your mind where, where this happened. We talked about the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen is right up here, or uh, the delta. This is a delta right here, and here's the land of Goshen, okay, this area within that circle. This is the area where they have uncovered uh, an archaeological site that's called Tel Adaba, and it's also called Avaris, in which later it was called Ramesses. And they think that somewhere in this area, 
you know, right up in here somewhere, is this place where the uh, Israelites actually lived. Another note, why are they called Israel? Can somebody explain to me why, why the land, you know the land of Israel, this is Jerusalem up here, I'll put it in blue. This is Jerusalem, so this is the land of Israel, kind of goes like this, you know. Why, why is it called Israel? Why do we call them the people of Israel? Yes, yes, yes. So I just wanted to make that clear. So Jacob has the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, and the reason they're called Israel is because God gave Jacob a new name. Does anybody remember? Oh, this is a side, this is a rabbit trail, but why, what does the name Jacob mean? Deceiver. Deceiver. And that's what he was, wasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, so God, God changed his name. A lot of the folks in the Old Testament had their names changed by God. But I wanted to let you know about these two different routes of the Exodus. Okay, I'm gonna put one route here in purple, meaning that here's the land, you know, the land of Egypt is here, the people are living here. They could have gone through a small body of water here, and they could, this, would have been the, this would have been the route, and then they say, then they went into the wilderness, and Sinai is down here. Okay, that's, that's one possibility. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. How did they explain Pharaoh's I know, that, that's a big miracle. <laughs> the, fact that, the fact that Pharaoh and his armies would drown in, in a foot of water has to be a miracle. I mean, and I wish I would have had that answer when I was in college and the professor was saying, well, it was just a swamp, and you know that's why they were able to get across. And but it, because it also doesn't make sense with that view, that I mean, if this was just a little swamp, why would Pharaoh and his armies have gone through, you know, through that area if there was, you know, some water on both sides? Why wouldn't they just go around and trap them on the other side? Militarily, it doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah, the other theory of this is that it was a bigger body of water that they crossed. And we see down here, this is, this is the Red Sea down here, right? And it has two arms. It has, this one right here is called the Gulf of Suez. This one is called the Gulf of Aqaba. And one theory is that they could have, the more traditional view, I think you see this in some older Bibles, is that the people came down this direction and they ended up coming down here and they had to cross somewhere across this way, you know, at the tip of the Gulf of Suez. And now, there is another superhighway, right, that they could have taken. There's a superhighway that I'll put in red up here. Do you, remember, do you remember this highway up here? This was called the Way of the Sea, the Way of the Philistines, because it goes up here to the cities of Gaza and Ashkelon. Those are the Philistine cities. But God told them, don't go here. Why did God tell them not to go there? They'd get killed right away. They might get, yeah, they'd be drawn into battle and would be killed right away. They weren't prepared because what do we know about this people, this brand new little nation of Israel coming out of Egypt? They'd been slaves. Did they know how to fight? Probably not. Were they equipped with lots of weapons? Probably not. I mean, it could have been part of the plunder that they received, you know, some of the weapons. We don't know. But God told them not to go that way. We've, we've talked about the birth analogy through part one, how God was delivering the people of Israel like a midwife delivers a baby. So Israel is like this newborn nation, very vulnerable, can't take care of itself. So Yahweh, God, needs to provide for the people of Israel. 
And so he provides for them in one way by saying, don't go the way of the sea. Don't go up toward the Philistines. You need to go, you, you're gonna go down here. There was an, we know that there was another route that goes this way. We know that there's another route that goes down this way. Okay, those are like super highways in their days. Chariots could even go on these, these paths, these routes. The Egyptian approach would say that it took place up here, that there was a little body of water up here, they crossed, that's where the Red Sea crossing happened. The other theory is the Hebrew approach, which says, which says no, they, they came down here, they, they avoided the, the, the Philistine highway, they came down here the way that Moses would have gone to Midian, because remember he was bringing the people back to the land of Midian. He was bringing them back to the place where he met with God at the burning bush. So he comes down here, but what happens is as the people come down, let's see, I'll use a different color. How about if I use purple? They come down here, they're on this super highway, they get over here. In Exodus 14, we learn that God says to them, turn back. Okay, so they were somewhere in this area. They were maybe even, you know, already maybe around the tip here. And God says, uh-uh, turn back. So the people obey, and what happens here? They get caught somewhere here or here or here. Okay, there's, there's three different actual locations where they're trying to investigate where that happened. There's a, um, and I won't go into all of those now, but if you want to look at that, they're in the Red, sea, or the Red Sea Miracle number one and Red Sea Miracle number two that are put out by Patterns of Evidence. We have those for you to borrow if you'd like. But this theory says that the people crossed this big body of water, either here or here or down here. And if you watch the movies, you remember that this one was called, this one right here is called Nueva Beach. Okay, this is an area that really fits the, the geography that's described in the Bible, in Exodus, of where they were. So, any questions? I think, I think, yeah, I think that this seems like probably a likely place, but. That's where they're diving, so yeah. They, in one of the, the archaeological things that I watched on YouTube, they seem to have found some wheels that have coral mm -hmm. that, that, have, that are on it, and it looks like wheels from chariots. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the archaeology, they, what they're finding seems to bear up. It does seem to fit, but one of the challenges is that where, where, where is this land right now in current geography? Who controls this land? That's the problem, is that they're, they're not allowed to even touch the coral that's there. So they can't bring anything up, they can't, they really can't do a lot of investigation there. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous place to go to investigate, so. We're gonna go away from maps right now, and we'll, we'll, we can talk more about this, you know, another time too, but I wanted to bring us back to the workbook. You, those of you that have done this study before know that one of the questions that I ask toward the beginning of every lesson is this. In one or two sentences or a few bullet points, summarize this passage and then record your summaries in the Exodus chapter summary chart, which is at, in the appendix in the back. Now, I know from talking to some of you that some of you hate this question. <laughs> Right, And some of you love this question. Some of you love to go through a chapter and say it in as few words as you can, all right? And I know it's really hard to distill God's word 
into just a because you feel like, oh, I'm leaving that out, and oh, I'm leaving that out, and you end up kind of rewriting the whole chapter. But it's a really important skill to learn to be able to just write in a couple bullet points or a sentence what that chapter was about so that when we come to a day like today when we're going to just review chapters 1 through 15, you can look back and go, oh yeah, I remember what chapter 3 was about because I wrote one sentence. And it'll jog your memory. So hang with me and, and don't hate that question too much. <laughs> but the other thing I will say is that I've talked to a couple of, of women who hate this question and say, it makes much more sense to do a summary after you've studied the passage. And I'd say, well, yes and no. What you could do is you could make a summary and write it in your, no in your notebook, study, and then go back and say, have I changed my mind? Is there another main point that I want to remember? And then maybe that's when you decide how you want to write it in your chart in the back of the book. Okay? You could do that. Now, I do want this time to be interactive, so those of you that have written some of those chapter summaries, I hope when I ask for them, you won't be shy and you'll call out what some of those summaries are, okay? Because that, that'll help us all to all get on the same page, okay? So here we are. We're going to start in Exodus 1 and 2. We studied together in one lesson in the fall. Our title was Our Redeemer Hears and Remembers he sees and knows, and that comes from the last couple of verses of chapter 2. Our main takeaway point was to trust our faithful God who hears, remembers, he sees, and he knows. Someone tell me, what is your chapter summary for chapter 1? What happens in chapter 1 of Exodus? I love, I mean, that, that, that encapsulates all that's happened. You know, we talked Joseph and the sons of, of Israel come. They multiply greatly. They have such favor. God is blessing them. But because they grow, they, they're a threat to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh says, I'm going to enslave you, and um, you're, you're, I, I don't want you to grow anymore. And he even puts an edict on them. Anybody else want to share? Do you have someone like the shortest summary ever? For, as an example, Okay. Like anybody have just like one or two bullet points or a or one sentence only that you want to share? Good. Okay, so you incorporated the four hundred years that they're there, they grow, the Pharaoh's afraid, and he enslaves them. That's great. See that that's that's a way to, you know, you guys just work on, on honing that skill of doing summaries. And when I did the teaching on this section, uh, these are the points that I used. They were growing in population, which you all, you, you put in your summaries. That's great. They grew. And we had those four different terms, right? They were fruitful. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly. Okay, God really blessed them. The land was filled with them. But then we realized that what happens is that it's Yahweh that's making them stronger, but he also turned the hearts of Pharaoh against the people. Remember back to Genesis 15. He had promised that this would happen, right? He told Abraham that this would happen. So it's very important for us to understand that, that God is sovereign. Pastor Stephen and Pastor Sam have reiterated that in the last couple of weeks. In the book of Daniel, God is sovereign. It was God who was executing judgment on the people. He had warned them and warned them and warned them. 
and now they're in exile. But God is still sovereign, and he will sustain them in exile, right? And don't you love all the parallels that we're seeing between Daniel and Exodus? It's beautiful. And so I'm glad that we're studying Exodus as a, a parallel here. Okay, so the people now begin to groan under this. They are in slavery. It's horrible. They are in pain. They are suffering. And in addition to this, there's a new edict that comes out, and that is kill the baby boys. All the baby boys are ordered to be drowned in the Nile River. And so we have two characters that step in here as heroes in this story. A couple of the only ones who are even named in this, this account. Yeah, Pua and Shifra, the midwives, are named. You know, I forgot to mention that, you know, when we talked about the dating of the book of Exodus, that one of the reasons that the dating is a challenge is because there isn't a particular verse in Exodus that says, during the reign of this particular pharaoh, this is when the people left. If that was the case, we would know exactly when it happened. But isn't it sweet providence of God that he doesn't even name the pharaoh? He doesn't even get that recognition. It's the midwives who get named. And eventually, we know the name of Moses' mother. And so we saw, you know, we're, this, we're blending over into chapter 2 now. But we see, in this section, we see five courageous women who step in, in a sense, all together as a team to rescue Moses. Okay? The midwives were, were, were very courageous. They feared God. Right? That is... Uh, a beautiful thing. Chapter 2. Anybody want to give their chapter summary? I'm going to try to repeat it in the mic so you can all hear. Chapter 2. Moses is born and through the efforts of his mother is not put to death. Okay, Moses, oh, sorry. He becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, yeah. Moses is born. The courage and faith of his mother. She puts him in the river. He's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. And here we have God's rescuer who is being rescued. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Okay, so that is God's plan. He was going to provide for his people a rescuer. He was going to preserve his people. And he does that, ironically, through the daughter of Pharaoh. So where does Moses end up growing up? In the palace of the Pharaoh. So he gets a best of education. He gets a best of resources. And... Later on then, he, when, as he grows up, probably because he had the advantage of when he was little, he didn't go immediately as a, as a, as a little tiny baby to the, to the palace, but who, who actually helped to raise him in his young, young years? His mom. Yeah, by the you know, ingenuity and bravery of his sister who was watching over him in the river. That's, that's sweet. Okay, but when he grows up, he sees the injustice that is done to his people, and what does he do? He, yeah, he tries to fix that injustice. He, he kills the Egyptian, and then he goes back thinking that the people are going to be so happy with him, right? He's going to be their deliverer. But what's, what's the response? Rejection. Yeah, he's rejected. Yeah, he's saying, are you going to kill us too? You know, and so Moses then, he ends up fleeing for his life. He goes off and he goes to Midian, right? 
And at the very end of chapter 2, these are some of my favorite verses in all of Exodus. I love chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. From Genesis 15, remember, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now this is all still Moses, the narrator, the author of this book, telling us that this is what God knew. This is God's thoughts about the people of Israel. But in the next chapter, we're going to see God tell Moses what he's doing, that he's hearing, that he's going to send him. Okay, So let's, let's go to Exodus 3. Our Redeemer, I am, that's the way he reveals himself in chapter 3, he comes down and he calls. And so when he comes down and calls, we need to trust in his character and trust in his name. Okay, here's he reveals himself to Moses in chapter 3. So chapter 3 opens in Midian. Do you remember where specifically at Midian they were? Where Moses was? What's that? Yep, he was by the mountain, and he sat down at a well. Do you remember that? Do you remember some of the connections that we drew? Do you remember back in Genesis how so many engagements happened at a well? And do you remember who does Moses meet in chapter 3? Or, wait, yeah. No, wait, wait, wait. Does he meet, he meets her back in chapter... Oh, I'm sorry, that was in chapter 2. We skipped over that. I'm teaching you falsehood. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 16? Remember, he sits down at the well in Midian, and he meets, he meets the girls. He saves them at the well. Okay, I was just going to mention that. Uh, I was talking with, with Carol during the break and just seeing the sweet connections to Jesus, and that's one of them. Remember, he sat down at the well. Do you remember what Jesus did in the book of John when he went through Samaria? He met the woman at the well. Okay, so Jesus provides that living water for us. And all the, all the engagements, the betrothals that happened at the well, what are, what are we in relation to Jesus now? What are we called according to scripture? The bride. the bride, the bride of Christ. Okay, so just beautiful connections here. Sorry, that was in chapter two. I want to be clear. Okay, so chapter, we're in chapter 3 now, and chapter 3 is where he reveals himself to Moses, and it's just a conversation with God and Moses, and they are here in Midian, and uh, God reveals himself, his person, he talks about how I have, I, have, I have done this in the past, here's how I know you here in the, in the present, and, and Moses, here's my future plan, I'm going to save you, and my name is I Am. Yahweh, that is my name, who I am. And so that is, Moses gets to know God in this way. God is holy, he's faithful, he's all-knowing, he's compassionate, he delivers, he's ever-present. He's going to send Moses on his behalf, and God is sufficient for everything that Moses needs to carry out his plan. God is enough for him. And so in this process, God counters 
Moses' excuses. Do you remember his excuses? The first excuse was, who am I? I'm nobody. Yeah, self-doubt, yeah. And God says, don't worry about who you are. This is who I am. I'm going with you. What's his second excuse? Yeah. So I'm, if I'm gonna go back to this people and says, say that God sent me, well, I need, I need to know more about you, God. I need to know who you are. What's your name? Because they're gonna grill me on who I met here at the burning bush, right? So, so he reveals his name, I am, to Moses. And I thought it was sweet that Pastor Sam talked about this last Sunday. Do you remember? He'd done some study, more studying on this. And I am who I am. I will be who I will be. You know, he had a list of all the ways that that phrase can be taken. They're beautiful about God. His plan, the Lord's plan, is to send Moses back to the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, but unfortunately, the bad news was that Pharaoh was not gonna listen, and he was not gonna let his people go unless they were compelled by the very strong hand, okay? So this is the hand of the Lord that's gonna be le leading the people of Israel tenderly, but it's also gonna be the hand of the Lord that's gonna push them out from the land of Egypt. He promised his people would have favor, that they would come out of Egypt with plunder, and we saw that even back in Genesis 15, didn't we? That was part of God's plan. All right, anything else that you want to add about chapter 3? Yeah, it is interesting. For those of you that didn't hear that, the movies brought out the fact that Moses being educated in the palace under Pharaoh probably learned a lot of military tactics and strategies and even you know, logistics for battles and, and the fact that God didn't say to him, Hey, Moses, I trained you in the, in the palace. You know how to do this. You've got this, Moses. That's not the way God encourages him. What does he say? Rely on me. I'm enough for you. That, that should be instructive for us to realize that we are not enough for what we face, but God is. He is with us, even if nobody listens to us, like happened to Moses. Chapter 4, let's go on. All right, our Redeemer equips and sends with power. God is full of grace and power, and he calls imperfect, weak people to do his work. So in chapter 4, we saw more of Moses' excuses. He says, they're not going to believe me. Uh, I don't have enough communication skills, and frankly, I just don't want to go. <laughs> okay, but throughout this chapter, we saw Moses has an excuse God encourages. Moses has another excuse. God encourages. But what happens by the time we get to the third, or the, this is the, actually the fifth excuse, the third one of this chapter. God is angry. I can't, Moses, I'm going to be with you. Just, you got you to gotta believe me. You got to trust me. So Moses finally then accepts this mission from God to actually go to Pharaoh. All right? I forgot to ask for your chapter summary. I'm sorry. We're going to go on to chapter 5 and 6, and this time I want chapter summaries from you. Okay, chapter 5 and 6, our Redeemer promises deliverance. This was the message that Amy brought to us, and she said it's darkest before the dawn when God waits. When our circumstances are dark, we must fix our eyes on the Lord and 
who is our Redeemer, trusting his promises and confident that his rescue is, is sure for our rescuer, our Redeemer, has come. So we talked about how we all have dark circumstances, and these two chapters get pretty dark here, get pretty discouraging. What happens in chapter 5? Moses and Aaron meet with Pharaoh and give him God's command to let Israel go. Pharaoh responds by clamping down on the Israelite slaves. They despair and won't listen any longer to Moses. So Moses confronts God with what seems to him a failure to keep his mm, Yeah, good summary. Thanks, Joyce. If I can recap it, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. This is what God says, let our people go. Pharaoh says no. And in fact, not only am I not going to let you go, you're going to make bricks with no straw. It's going to be really bad for you. And the people are like, thanks a lot, Moses. You just made life a lot worse for us. And so they, they have doubt. They're angry with Moses. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, Moses himself is accusing God. Right? So it gets very dark in chapter 5. Anybody else want to add to that? How about chapter 6? Does it turn around a little bit? So here, that's a great summary. Thanks, Cheryl. You know, what we have here is God stepping in again and saying, now you're going to see what I'm going to do. You know, I, I am faithful to my promises. I will drive you out with a strong hand. Um, this is going to happen. But, you know, he reminds them, I am the Lord. I've established my covenant. You need to be reminded of that. I, I will bring you out. And again, there's more doubt. There's more disbelief. And then there's this odd thing that happened that Cheryl mentioned, and that is that there's a genealogy thrown in here to chapter 5. Why in the world does Moses, as the author, stop at this point in his, you know, his narrative and put, throw in a genealogy? Any of you recall any of the things that you learned from studying the genealogy? Oh, chapter, did I say five again? Yeah, it is. That is really sweet to say, to say it that way. And I'll reiterate for the recording, it's chapter six, not chapter five. These, these are COVID lessons. I, I still have some COVID brain left over. Okay, so God puts the, the genealogy here in because remember his audience. His audience is about to go into the promised land, okay? Do you remember Moses can't go with them? He is telling them these things so that they remember because how many years are they wandering in the wilderness? 40 years. And so the people that are going to go into the wilderness were not even alive when this happened. So he's writing this so that they know their roots. They know what happened. They can recall. And so this, this is an important part of their history. And there's, there's, there's a lot of sweet things we can learn from the genealogy. And if you want to look back at that, all right, let's go to chapters 7 through 11, and because I want to finish to give you guys a little bit of time in groups. So, our Redeemer makes himself known above all other gods. And here, our big main takeaway point was our Redeemer, Yahweh, makes himself known through persuasive power over nature and extraordinary events. And those were the 10 plagues. Somebody give me a synopsis. We don't have to mention all the plagues, but um, what were some of your big takeaways from chapter 7 through 11? 
Remember that in this section, in Exodus 9, God told Pharaoh, through Moses, he said, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in where? All the earth, right? So he could have just said, bingo, Pharaoh, you're gone. But he didn't. These 10 plagues are really 10 ways that God is extending mercy, saying, let my people go. Pharaoh says, uh-uh, plague. Let my people go, no, another plague. This is mercy after mercy, you know, on him to, to get him to let the people go. The people of Israel are experiencing God's mercy in another way, aren't they? How do, how do they experience his mercy in chapters 7 through 11? Yeah, some of the plagues do not affect them at all. Yeah, they're only on Egypt, remember? That's another part of the miracle is that they're only in a specific area. By the time we get to the 10th plague, what specific mercy do we see? The Passover. Okay, God gives a way of escape from the destroyer that's coming. The destroyer is going to destroy all the firstborn in the whole land. Israel is not exempt because they're special. You remember that? They're not exempt like they were with some of the other plagues. God says, I'm going to provide a way for you, but you need to have trust in me. You need to have faith. You need to take a land, you know. And so he says, this is what you're going to do. They have to believe it. Other ways, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the plagues were specifically tearing down those Egyptian gods. They got worse and worse from a nasty fly to really painful things and more personal things. Yeah. So it increased the groaning that's going on. Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about in this section was the repeated phrase of hardening. Okay, this was, this was, a, this was a difficult um, section here. God is warning Pharaoh, and we see that Moses is completely obedient. He has no more excuses. We saw God's power is superior to all those other gods, and we saw this hardening of Pharaoh's heart that happens until ultimately he is going to know that Yahweh is God and he's going to let the people go. We get to chapter 12 now and 13, and this is where the 10th plague actually comes. So this, the idea of Passover and 10th plague are the same thing. This is the, this is the death of the firstborn, is the last of the plagues. The title of our lesson was Our Redeemer Reveals Himself in the Passover Lamb in the Exodus. And my aim was that you would see and trust Jesus, our Passover Lamb of God who is God's firstborn son who died in our place. And I'm not going to go through all of these points, but all of these related to Jesus being the lamb. And you remember one of the things that they were to do is they were to take this lamb and to watch for it because this lamb needed to be perfect in every way. And they were to kill this lamb at the, at the threshold of their house where there was a little a basin Okay, so the blood was down here, and then he instructed them to take the hyssop and do what with it? Paint the door. 
okay, the sides. Okay, so this was, this was forming a, complete, a doorway that was completely surrounded by blood. So if the people were inside, they were safe. They were covered by the blood. So when the destroyer went over, they were safe inside. And then the next morning, when Pharaoh says, yes, you can go, they walk through this doorway of blood. This is another picture of birth. This is a new nation that God is birthing. He has grown them, they're complete, they're all the way to term, and they're being pushed right out, okay? So then they, they're released, they, get, they, they, uh, they celebrate that night, they eat the lamb, they eat unleavened bread. What does unleavened bread mean? What does that point to? Hey, that they're leaving in haste, and it also points to? Yeah, yeah, it's a type of sin. We learn that later in in the New Testament, that, that it's a type of sin. It's something that just permeates. It also points, the Passover also points to the New Testament. And what do we celebrate now that is similar to Passover? Yeah, we celebrate Easter. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We, cel- we have communion where we remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Okay, and by the way, in April, you might want to put this date on your calendar, April 8th, Friday, we're going to be celebrating a Passover, a Seder meal here. Okay, so we can learn how the different aspects of Passover actually point to Jesus and how he fulfilled them. Here we see the people of Israel are trapped. The Lord had tur- told them to turn back, and we see our Redeemer revealed as mighty to save and also to lead them. And so our big takeaway point was trust the Lord, our faithful, ever-present leader, our strong deliverer, our mighty redeemer, even when we can't see or understand what he's doing. That's, that happens to us a lot in our lives, right? We just don't, we don't get what God is doing, but we can, we can, in faith, know that he's doing thousands of things that we can't see and that maybe even someday we might see one of those things. Maybe not. We may not ever see, but we can still trust him because he's faithful. All right, so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. He told them to turn back, and this is where they get trapped. We've already talked about that this morning. So the points that I made in this teaching time was trusting the Lord. He's our strong deliverer. Even when we can't understand why, he will fight for us. He wants to display his glory in our lives. He wants us to serve him. So Moses encourages the people. He says, fear not, stand firm, see with your eyes. That was a theme that we saw throughout that chapter, remember, was to look and to see God's providence, God's sovereignty in all of this, and then to trust him because he gets the glory. And that's what the people do then in the next chapter. In chapter 15, how about some summary statements from you all for chapter 15? I, left, I let you off the hook the last couple of chapters. What happens in chapter 15? Rejoicing. Rejoicing, great rejoicing, because they've made it to the other side of the Red Sea, not through mud, but through dry land. Yes, and what happens to Pharaoh? What do they say? Or not, not, Pharaoh's armies, his chariots. The horse and the rider are thrown into the sea, right? That's part of what they sing. Yeah, so 
breaking the chapter up in verses one through three, he saves. Chapter 15, verses one through three, he saves. Okay, he's glorious in power in verses four through 12. He leads his people and he redeems them. This is verses 13 through 17. He reigns over all, verse 18. And then we are to sing to the Lord too. He is so gracious to us. He is our great redeemer. And when we are redeemed, that should lead to us rejoicing. We should be delighting in all that God has done for us. And that is how we're instructed. I mean, all over the New Testament, singing, you know, we are to sing to the Lord, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, even writing new songs of praise to him. So that should be part of our daily habit is worship. Next week, we're going to see what happens as they, they leave the shores of the Red Sea and they go on in their journey. We'll see how, how much they rejoice in the days ahead. Okay? Or not. Let me close in prayer, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do next. Thank you, Lord, for helping to lead us through in a very quick review of the wonderful, mighty, awesome deeds that you have done for the people of Israel and for us. Thank you for being our Redeemer. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that as we go to our groups now, that you would just help us to get to know one another and this week as we go and we study, Lord, that you would just give us eyes to see, see wonderful things in your word. Help us to see you, Jesus, we pray.